Welcome to Wilma's podcast. This is the podcast for anyone who wants to stay current on topics of interest in occupational and environmental medicine. Wilma is a Western Occupational and Environmental Medicine Association and a component of ACOM. We have designed these Wilma podcasts to be a tool and a benefit for Wilma members, as well as anyone interested in learning more about worker and environmental health. The Wilma Education Committee members involved in planning the session and today's speaker have no relevant financial relationships to disclose. I am Dr. Alia Khan, and this episode is part two of a two-part series that features the esteemed Dr. Donna Baytop in honor of Black History Month. She was interviewed by Dr. Rupali Das, President-elect of Wilma and co-chair of the JEDI Committee, which stands for Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. I hope you enjoy. Well, you mentioned not only your resilience, but there were people who responded in the right way. And so can you tell us about the mentors that made significant impacts on, on your career and any kind of impact that you feel is important to tell us about? Well, yeah, unfortunately, my generation, and I was the youngest of seven, so I had constant role models through my older brothers and sisters who had to go out there first. We were in a post-civil rights, we were the first post-civil rights generation, talented, you know, students uh, to challenge the environment. Um, We rely on each other a lot. So I was sort of raised in an environment where there were, it was expected that you would have a career, even though we were from a very poor um, environment in a Southern city in the projects, but we had a faith and we had resilience and we happened to have a lot of talent in one family as such. Um, So I have a team of mentors you know, I have a brother who is a professor at uh, Professor of Sociology at the University of Miami, well-published. Uh, he published a book called um, The History of Golf During the African-American, I'm sorry, The if- History of African-American Golf During the Jim Crow Era. An excellent treatise where he found all of the, the data and the the background facts. And my father was a professional golfer who turned pro at the age of 18 in 1927. Wow. Which was a year after Black History Week was dedicated by Carter G. Woodson, right? So he uh, was turned pro at the age of 18. So he was a professional golfer and uh, lived to be 95 years old. So in my presence, even though he's my father, he gives all kinds of lessons in life of having to endure. Um, That was something that was difficult. How did people endure? My my, uh, sister is a clinical and forensic police psychologist, is a twin brother of the, she has the twin brother at University of Miami. And I have a brother who's a CPA and a financial officer. He was a retired financial officer for Miami-Dade School Board. Then I have another sister who's a PhD 
and a former professor of graduate nursing education. Um, so we had professionals in our in our family as such. So you always had someone you could call. Um, my nephew is a um, with, um, football Hall of Famer, uh, Brian Dawkins, who does a great job of expressing how he came through challenges and, and mental health challenges as well as being in the professional world. I was fortunate to to meet figures like Dr. John Hope Franklin, who would have been seven years old and 19, born in 1913, he would have been seven years old during the Tulsa riots. And he became a great historian of African-American history. Um, just to sit down and talk with historical figures, people who literally weathered the storm and survived. How? Um, to me, it was just magnificent. And I, I also had mentors in the business environment. Um, I had a mentor. I considered my boss as my mentor, and that was unusual to have your you know, VP of Human Resources. But this, this, this woman was outstanding. She, she had lived all over the world. She came from a diverse um, um, environment of business. And she would take the time to make sure that um, I had the enough coaching and uh, support to make sure that um, I could be successful. That's what I mean by had support. A person that I regarded in the corporate environment as a, as a mentor. So to me, those are the kind of people who, who mentored in my life. Um, they were, it was like opening a book, reading about someone, but you're living through their era, talking face to face with them. It was just outstanding. So I've had great mentors okay. in that sense who've always seen me for who I am and supported it. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. That that is amazing, uh, and I'm so glad you mentioned your family in addition to your professional mentors. Because a lot of times we only think about the professional mentors, but obviously these um, your personality, your resilience, your approach to life. So much of that is formed when you're young. And thank you for describing your amazing family. That, that I'm going to have to read about your father. Yes, <laughs> and, and his book. You were one of the early people to enter occupational medicine in the modern era. It's sort of a oxymoron, <laughs> early and, and modern, but you, you've seen it probably change. How has occupational medicine changed in your view from, from when you first started working compared to the way you see it now? Um, has changed a lot to the best, and that's, that's important. Um, I came through... Uh, into occupational medicine when uh, you're in-house, when your uh, occupational medical services were corporate and in-house, were driven by the corporate environment, which is good. Um, I was on, we had on-site teams and I participated in the business strategies that expanded 
in sourcing clinical occupational medicine and leadership teams were, were uh, very important for uh, the growth of Ahmed. When we went to the conferences, many of the doctors were corporate occupational medical directors. So that was the, the direction. As it moved forward, it has shifted. And the shift is to partnerships, partnerships in occupational medicine, partnerships that support smaller teams in-house and for, for, for financial reasons uh, have shifted to outsourcing occupational medicine. At the same time, they, um, you're trying to train new doctors specifically to have an experience in a business environment, the business aspects of occupational medicine. Um, the strategies have to be more innovative when you deliver augmented. It can't be just treat the patient and walk away, but that patient comes with um, an entire social and workplace history that you must engage. We also have many paraprofessionals that have made sometimes competing agendas, but most of the time, the occupational health and public health agendas, uh, when we become collaborative with our paraprofessionals, we are successful at enhancing Ahmed. The leadership that Ahmed physicians have to have as a forefront, because they are the professional that creates the successful relationships so that it is not only the interests of business or only the interests of employees, it's both. So there has to be a lot more leadership in that sense. Um, you also have to cultivate the research in not men. We didn't have a lot of research when I first started working in the Ahmed environment, it was always anecdotal uh, issues or things that happened and we shared what happened. Now you have an opportunity to have scientific uh, approaches to research health policy, um, efforts to ensure that all, all the workers receive, at all levels of the workplace, receive the best preventive approaches as possible, empowering employees and empowering employers to be proactive and embrace health and safety in the workplace. There's so many more opportunities for, I think, for occupational physicians to be effective in the area of worker health and safety. Thank you for that. It, it sounds like you feel in many ways we are improving, that they're taking advantage of opportunities to grow and expand and improve the field. Exactly. The education aspect is, has to even be, uh, you know, more, more forefront. And we see that through our residencies. Um, we, that's why we are, I spend so much to support our residents. Mm -hmm. That's a great segue to uh, what I'm wondering about next. What what advice do you have for students at any level, whether, you know, you mentioned residents and that's probably who we have the most interaction with, but um, if you have advice for those who are undergraduates or in medical school who are contemplating our field? 
Um, and it doesn't have to be in corporate occupational medicine, but you could talk about corporate or just occupational medicine in general. What top advice would you have for these students? Well, I, I, I would first have um, make sure that the students, undergraduate medical school residents, especially, spend, spend time developing and determining who you are and what you want out of the profession um, that you're looking to go into. What is it that you want to focus on? And then endeavor to do your training in such of a way that you get the most out of those who are um, professors or offering, you know, mentors, educational professional mentors who are offering advice as such. Seek them out and look for them. And um, we need so many more scientists and experts that will bring a lot more ideas into our profession. Um, because we are rapidly shifting from the way we practice medicine into an AI world. The more we get our students and our next generation of professionals to use AI to bring solutions in our professions, um, the greater the impact that occupational medicine will have. It's a digital world out there, and um, there are a lot of new ways to, uh, to choose in different practices. But I think the corporate environment of Ahmed uh, will always be a little on the smaller side as far as opportunity. But the collaborative and creative entrepreneur who is out there bringing the state of the art to the business environment is going to be the future. You, you mentioned that shift in your, in your response to the prior question uh, about corporate, um, how you saw the shift in how occupational medicine is, is being used in the corporate environment. Do you see that continuing with the more outsourcing? I, I would say a wise corporate uh, business strategy would always have an expert in-house corporate team to assure that they're moving in the right direction. Outsourcing everything or dispensing it to human resources to go find someone to do these exams, I said the true commitment to people first, wise corporate environment would have a core team so there will always be or there should always be a corporate Ahmed environment it's a fast medicine is a fast moving environment and you just can't leave it to wait until it comes on the market to be able to do certain exams you've got to be creative and set the pace ahead of the market and stimulate and support the market so a core team in a corp in corporate occupational medicine, I do think is, is uh, essential to the success of any business environment. Good advice. Thank you for that. So uh, shifting a little bit on our organization, WOMA, I know you've been part of WOMA for a long time. How has being part of WOMA influenced you and 
How have you helped to shape WOMA? Well, I, I joined WOMA and ACOM well over 35 years ago and um, joined the first year that I moved to San Diego. I was invited by a WOMA director, a colleague, to come and see what we do. I really appreciated that because I was very impressed that over the years, my colleagues have become my go-to resource to help stimulate new ideas, new innovations or innovations, uh, maintain the state of the art, highest level of excellence in the practice of art men. We need our organization in order to cultivate and, and continue to support that, to support walk, to support worksite visits. I've been able to do that. I was elected as one of the directors. Stay involved is what I encourage, you know, all positions as such. And uh, I, I was a past president of WOMA, past chair of WOMA. As a matter of fact, during my president position in the late 90s, a long time ago in the late 90s, well, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we developed our web first website. That's how we started moving into it. Look at the website now. It's exceptional. Wow. All these opportunities that are available uh -huh. in state-of-the-art CMEs and ethics. Uh, you know, I, I really appreciate being on the ethics committee, the racism work group. I've been a delegate at the House of Delegates of ACOM, you know, continuing to advise everyone in, in the business of uh, uh, employee health, preventive medicine. We are in the right direction, focusing on education and health policy, being involved in the, 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 the decisions that are made regarding workplace health and wellness and employee safety. We need that, you know, WOMA can be the template that sets the standard for uh, service practices, occupational medical clinical services, whether they're in-house or at outside clinics. We can disseminate tools on how to deal with health disparities. I just see WOMA being the key to sustaining employee health, employees first. And that is uh, it's directly related to our workplace and efforts in labor and business without a doubt. So we need our Walmart experts. I, I like that. Um, it, it sounds like you've played a many, many roles, it, leadership roles. And I really like uh, what you just said about our organization helping to place workers first. That kind of says, uh, summarizes our role in occupational medicine as physicians. And then um, as we come to a close um, and uh, we are doing this, as I said at the beginning of this interview in honor of Black History Month, um, what does Black History Month mean to you as a person, as a woman professional and especially a woman professional in occupational medicine? Um, you know, Black history has always helped me to, to much to better understand and, and connect the past to the present. It gives us an opportunity to look at issues in our present society 
at the same time, take the exceptional accomplishments of very brave people throughout history, sung and unsung African-American heroes and sheroes who shaped and, and you know, guided us to where we currently live. I enjoy celebrating people and I enjoy my African-American heritage, the contributions that exist in the scientific, educational and cultural communities, even social, definitely social justice because of the sacrifices that people have made. Uh, I'm in awe when I experience um, new people today who are making history and what they do, their talents, and what you have contributed, what we as African-Americans have contributed to make our country what it is today. Uh, we To honor people and share and preserve legacies, I think that that is just exceptional. And it requires, um, it requires me to make other people's lives better as a professional African-American woman. And it requires me to see the potential and talent that this generation has so that I can help support, support them into the next generation. That is an honor for me to participate in and look at all the people that have come before me there are things I did not have to be subject to because of them, because of African-Americans who came before me. I did not have to do those things. So it must be that I am here at this point in time because it's now my job to make sure that other people's lives are made better because of what I can do to help other people. The circle, you um, expressed that so well, Dr. Baytop, that you drew on the strength and the lessons from those who came before you and you're passing it on to the next generation, which, which is uh, amazing. Well, thank you so much uh, for sharing your, your experiences. I kind of felt like I traveled on this journey of your life with you in a lightning speed. Well, that was um, first chapter. <laughs> yes, that was, that was a very abbreviated chapter of your life. Yes, first chapter to your book. Uh, is there anything else? We, we do have a few minutes, but is there anything else um, well, that you'd like to share that I didn't ask you? There was one thing that I didn't, uh, and that I meant to share, and it was an, an experience I had about being a female uh, physician that... Uh -huh. uh, Actually, it was a surprise to me when it happened, but I, you know, I was just a resident, right? You know, residents run around and do everything they're supposed to do and work hard and et cetera. And I came to uh, surgery and I would run in and put on my scrubs, you know, blue pants and top and run into surgery. And I was actually blocked from going into the OR by the supervisor of nursing because she said that I was not properly dressed. And I looked at my scrubs and my pants and said, hmm, I think they're clean because I got them off the clean shelf. And her response was, no, you have to wear a dress smock like all the other nurses. I said, oh, I'm a resident, you know, I just let me go. No, no, you, you are not properly dressed. Go back and change into a dress. 
uh, I politely went under her arm and went into the OR and took care of the business that I needed to do as a resident. When I came out, uh, I was again told uh, that, that you basically, when you're in Rome, do as Romans. We wear dresses because we are sterile. We are more sterile than the doctors. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to laugh at this, right? It must be a joke or something. And um, then I got a letter in the mail. And I just went on my way, kind of laughed it off, went off my way. And I got a letter from the chief of surgery of the whole hospital. And he agreed with the nursing supervisor that emphasized that uh, I had to wear a dress or a smock when I went into surgery. And uh, that that was the uniform attire for females and nurses. And I was no exception because I was a resident. Well, yeah, I kind of took went ahead and got my surgical blues and ignored it. So I ignored the chief of surgery. Eh, what difference does it make? Oh, you know, my face covered. I, I'm learning. I don't have time to do this. Then I got a call to come to the assistant hospital administrator's office. Who does this, right? It must be a joke, right? <laughs> he advised me that the nurses have filed a formal complaint with the hospital administrator because I, um, to, to add, why were they required to wear a dress and a smock and I was allowed to enter the doctor's lounge and wear pants? And I'm scratching my head. Doesn't my dad say MD? I mean, doesn't it? What's going on here? Then he very politely asked me to do him a favor. Will you please do me a favor? Just don't go into the doctor's lounge for, for just a short time until we, because that's where the surgical scrubs were kept, the pants. Uh -huh. Don't go into the lounge. We'll keep a special place for you. Uh, to to have pants. At the same time, I have ordered, I, the administrator, have ordered pants for the nurses and other female residents. There were only two of us. The other female resident was Anglo and she wore a dress. I wore pants. You know, since the other resident had complied, they thought I was supposed to put on a smart dress. They set aside surgical blues for me for about a week or so. New surgical blues came in, neatly fitting for all the nurses arrived in the entire department. Nurses would tap me on the shoulder and say, thank you. We have been asking for surgical pants. Uh, away goes all the surgical smocks. Have you seen a surgical nurse smock lately? Period. Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't know that I was helping to get rid of the surgical pant, you know, surgical smock. But essentially, I was a female doctor. So I was supposed to do as females were supposed to do. I could only have female patients. I had to ask, wait a minute, guys, this family medicine, I need to see more than females. And they said, oh, yeah, that's right. So we'll give you some families and male and female. And and my first job, they said, they, you could only have female patients. And the medical director, who's a male, he gets all the male patients. And I'm scratching my head and saying, 
I went to the chief medical director and say, how does that work? How do I work in this environment? And I only see females. And he said, oh, I, I apologize. I'll, I'll take care of that. And I got male and female patients. It seemed as if when I would ask why, like the little two-year-old, four-year-old, you're asked why, 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 why? Mm-hmm. And the safety effort is five whys. You keep asking why, and you do get to the root of the mm-hmm. answer. But you so you also resolve issues that people take for granted. I did not know there was such a big deal to be a female doctor until I came into what what I wear in OR. Come on, people. But I hope I end on a, on a positive note, and I don't want to go over time, but a lot of times I, I, I just talk to people and say, come on, do we really want to do this? And then they would say, yeah, you're right. Now, so soon to do it. I know for a lot of other people that they deal with a lot more in dealing with racism and discrimination and bias and overt issues of, 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 of concerns. And that's why we have Black History Month to show the positives in the environment as well as the struggles people have had. Um, we're in a new age. It's supposed to be the 21st century. Artificial intelligence. I don't think we're gonna choose to put a skirt or pants on artificial intelligence, right? I hope not. Why is this bias so held to? And that's why I need the camaraderie of my colleagues to help answer those questions, why? And as we answer why, we resolve. And we resolve to make things better for everyone. And I'll stop there. Thank you so much. Excellent place to stop. Very uplifting, uh, amazing. I mean, I was amazed by your story because um, it is an amazing story and hard. So many uh, younger physicians cannot imagine that kind of uh, sexist culture in medicine or haven't experienced it. And exactly. exactly. And, and your, I hope they never have to. Yes. Yes. I hope so. Thank, thanks to people like you and your um, excellent advice to peel the onion by asking all those why questions. Thank you for all you've done to make You're very welcome. Lives. And thank you, you know, for yeah. everything you do for, for Wilma and for all of us as well. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I wanted to thank you for the interview and also thank you for paving the way for so many positions. You've done so much, uh, made differences along the way. And uh, I so appreciate having you as sort of an un- unspoken mentor and example. I, I am I am so proud and delighted that you're part of Walmart even after you're retired. Yes, I enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you. We want to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, we would like to invite you to explore more of our episodes. You can find our library of podcasts on the WOMA website, www.woema.org. And we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast channel at your favorite site for podcast listening. You'll be notified as new episodes become available. Topics could include the latest clinical update, emerging treatments in medicine, or topics in public and environmental health. Stay tuned and don't miss out. Until next time, be well.